0: Hey everybody, this is Charles Hane. Welcome to the No Film School podcast for the week of August 15th, 2020. This week on the show, number one, we are talking about the final official end of the Paramount Decrees and what that's going to mean for you filmmakers. We're going to be talking about a very famous cinematographer's thoughts on test screenings. We've got some tech news out of a little company called Sigma. They've released a new art lens, and it's super cool. And I want to talk about why I think it is cool. We've got all that and an Ask No Film School this week on the No Film School podcast. Our top story this week is the official... It is now finally done, ends of the Paramount Decrees. What are the Paramount Decrees, you might be wondering? So in the late 1940s, the classic sort of quote-unquote golden age of Hollywood, the Hollywood studios owned the studios, like the physical buildings where movies were shot, and they owned like what we think of as a studio now, like the intellectual property, the content, the ideas, and they owned the theaters, the whole thing vertically integrated. They also had exclusive contracts with actors. They had the whole deal all wrapped up in a bow, but that can be anti-competitive. And we have antitrust laws in America. Although uh, as someone was pointing out, based on the tech hearings in the last couple of weeks with Amazon and Apple going to Congress, like we haven't really updated our tech laws our antitrust laws in a hundred years or so. Uh, antitrust laws are a little, uh, some of them don't seem to understand new technology, but the, in the late forties, uh some lawsuits were brought against paramount pictures that made it all the way to the supreme court that argued that it was anti-competitive for them to vertically integrate like this if you were an independent producer you couldn't go out and make a movie and get it shown in theaters because every theater was owned by a studio that was filling it with their own content so you know going to the odeon down the street or the vista or whatever it was owned by a studio and they were only putting their own studios movies in there or if they had deals with other studios you know, the big guys were playing with the big guys and the little guy couldn't come in and and make something independently and get it on theater screens. So, uh, went all the way to Supreme Court. The Paramount decrees came out of it in 48 and it said, Hey guys, you have to divest. You can't stay vertically integrated. If you are a producer of content, you cannot own the distribution platform for that content, but it didn't say distribution platform. It said theater. You couldn't own the theater.
1: Dun, dun, now,
0: <laughs> in 2020, there are a lot of people who both make the content, Netflix, Amazon, Disney, and own the distribution platform for that content. Meaning Disney Plus, Netflix, Apple uh, TV Plus, um, all. So we're back in the same place we were Don't forget in forget HBO Max, HBO Max, right? All of them, in some cases, even own their own studios, right? Netflix owns some production facilities. Disney obviously owns their wonderful lot in like the burbanky Glendale area. We're back in that place. But because the world is weird, instead of the realization being, oh, well, we should bring this to the Supreme Court. We have precedent for this. Like, we should make it so that the content producer divests from the distribution platform. Because, you know, if you're an independent filmmaker right now, and you're like trying to get your film on any of these platforms, if these platforms are the primary ways audiences find movies, well, what incentive does Disney have to promote a third party movie on their platform when they can just promote their own content on their platform? Some might think it would go that way, but because the world doesn't make any sense, actually this technology change has uh, driven the courts to actually say, well, you know, theatricals now less important. Like the theaters are less of a big deal. It's no longer where most of the revenue is. So you know what? Studios can buy theaters. So that's where we are now. It is official. It's been coming for about a year. In fact, Netflix about a year ago took out a long-term lease on the Paris in New York So that was like, and that happened like the week the consent decrees uh, sort of started to roll back.
1: And we did talk about this then. We did do the kind of the brief, the brush up, which you just did a great job of. And you did an excellent job explaining what the whole situation is and what the landscape is and why it is the way it is. Um, Nicely done. Um,
2: Thank you.
1: And and now here we are. And it's actually happening. And I would say that one reason, maybe, I don't know if you agree, um, is that the theater is like a uh, like you said it's a struggling business right now so it's more like you know the amcs of the world are going to be saved by netflix saying oh yeah we have the money we'll buy all your you know theaters and we'll show you know i mean i don't mean saved but they're just going to be it's like have any of you in the world yet driven by like an amazon brick and mortar store they don't make money on those they just have them it's like <laughs> like Amazon has brick and mortar. They never needed it. It's not how they make their money, but they own them. And they put Amazon, they put their products and et cetera, et cetera. And they bought a grocery store chain in Whole Foods. And so we're just going to see this happening where like Amazon is going to buy AMC or, or Netflix is going to, someone is, and then that's where they're going to show their movies. And it's going to be, a, the, the streaming war is going to go to the streets. So,
0: the, the the expression for this I just learned in an article a couple months ago is called clicks to bricks. Ooh, yeah. Of any sort of modern media, you know, like that's when like a Warby Parker goes and opens their own store. Uh, first off, I'm not inherently against it because like I want movie theaters to exist and I want to be able to see The Irishman in movie theaters, which was a difficult thing for The Irishman to navigate because it was Netflix produced. And if this ends up meaning that Apple and – If Apple and Amazon and Netflix and Disney and HBO Max, all of them buy rival movie chains, then that might keep them alive. Like they might become loss leaders where like Apple is now just making money off popcorn and, you know, we're getting to see interestingly created content. The problem is, is there's very few markets where there's like, you know, in New York City, I can go to like three AMC multiplexes, but then I have to go to Manhattan to go to a multiplex that is an AMC in Brooklyn. In LA, there was... A couple of like in every market I've ever lived in, there's a dominant player. So if Apple happens to buy that dominant player, great. I can see Apple movies, but I can't see the Netflix movies I want to see.
1: That is the fear, yeah. That you'll live in a town, and you're talking about a big town, New York.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's. It, I've heard it's a pretty big town.
1: <laughs> you're gonna. We're talking about you live in a town where only one chain bought the theaters. So like, if you want to see a Netflix movie, do you have to go to like Jersey or something weird like that? Like that doesn't sound very pleasant. For a couple of reasons. But I think the ideal version of this is that they buy like little boutique theaters. They don't buy up the big – like in theory, it would be nice if like AMC didn't go by the wayside. But maybe that they just put up their own little theaters to show their theatricals. But I don't think that's how it's going to work.
0: I mean, I don't think any of these companies w- – I mean, someone had to pay the money to bring this lawsuit to fight it to, to uh, where it could get – True. Nobody nobody is wandering around overflipping old case law if there's not a financial incentive in it because it takes money and time yeah. to do that. So n- whoever paid the money to get this flipped wasn't just looking at a long-term lease on the Paris. And you know what really bums me out about this is that it feels a little craven to like Hit the movie theaters while they're down.
1: Yeah, I agree. It's like uh, it's I, I was gonna say it's a uh, I think I've said it before, used this phrasing, but it's like, it's like landing a haymaker after all these body blows. Like this business is on the mat. Like, it's struggling to get up and like, you don't need to start kicking it when it's down. But I mean, but it's capitalism. So you kind of do. But the other thing that's that that imagery that I have, especially when I think about like Amazon opening bookstores, is that it's like, you didn't just have to destroy the landscape of bookstores like independent bookstores, you salted the earth. Like nothing can be grown there now. And you put up a monument to the defeat of that thing by saying like, we're going to have our own that doesn't even need to make money. Like it's a very powerful statement to be like, movie theaters are dead. We're going to crush them. And we're going to put up our own ones just so we can make a little money off popcorn and like, you know, write off all our losses at the, you know, all our, sorry, write off all our gains at the end of the year or whatever in the loss on the movie theater wing of our business. I mean, it just feels dirty. I agree. On
0: the flip side, it is also an acknowledgement that there is still something different about the experience. Because, for instance, with the bookstore analogy, in the at the end of the chain, like I'm going to leave Kindle out of this because I'm not a big Kindle guy. At the end of the chain, if I order the book on Amazon, or if I get it in person at Skylight, or you know the last bookstore, I just named two LA places I used to like to go, um, I still sit on my couch and read the same physical book. I have the same emotional experience, right? Which is one of the ways Amazon was able to come in and be like, you know, we can get you that same book in 1997 or whatever when they first started kicking off. Whereas now, I think there is some acknowledgement that the cinematic movie experience is still a very distinctly, uniquely wonderful one. And so it is something that like these these big companies see a future in continuing and are willing to invest the money buying up the asset now on the assumption that they will continue to find ways to keep content on the screens and keep butts in those seats and I, that's yep, an interesting thing for me that I, I i find fascinating about this whole process i mean i'm hoping i mean look it's it's a complicated messy time i think if one of if one of the big chains has to get bought i hope that i wish there was some regulatory body that could force it to being broken up like mm-hmm. so that it's not you're buying all of AMC it's you get to buy one AMC in a in every city Someone else gets to buy one AMC in every city or something. If there was some way to like,
1: you so know, it's not a feeding frenzy and then one wins. I have a feeling, Charles, I just have a feeling that even if Netflix, say, buys AMC, Disney is not going to sit idly by while Netflix takes over every AMC. They're going to put up their own whatever. Like, I just, that's, that's what I think will happen. But I agree with you that the Amazon, isn't it funny? For those who don't know this, that Amazon actually just sold books at the beginning. Like that's all they sold was actual books. Yeah. Um, crazy. But uh, the thing that about the movie theater experience is that there is something about these companies like Netflix and Apple that they value some of this stuff, and they value like the Martin Scorsese's of the world, and they may be carving out a little place for Marty to keep making his movies that are expensive and hard to make, like Apple swooped in and is helping him make his next one. And we have stories up about that on No Film School. And today, there was a story that he is signing a bigger overall with Apple. So there is a place maybe in this business model for filmmakers are types of films that might've been getting pushed to the brink or the outskirts prior. So let's see, maybe, th- maybe it'll do more good than harm. You never know.
0: Well, it's also a great reminder that like the model's always been changing. Like the industry, Martin Scorsese entered in the sixties was financed one way. And then, you know, it was a different thing in the seventies and there was no home video market. You were either making it on theatrical or you were making it on TV and that was it. Then the 80s home theatrical came in and that changed everything. And then DVD changed. Like it always keeps changing. And now we're in this place where tech wants prestige and Scorsese brings prestige. I mean, Apple TV needs a breakout out, des- like needs a needs a Hamilton needs a something needs a thing that makes it like worth it to go. And like, yeah, Scorsese is a pretty good buy. Like he's yeah. very reliable. His work is you know, um, very engaging to a wide variety of people and he has he has an audience. So I think it is sort of an interesting thing to to look at the end of the Paramount Decrees and how it's going to shake out over the next couple of years. I mean, I hope that Alamo seems like they'll survive. Alamo seems scrappy. Um, so hopefully Alamo will be able to hold out. Or I mean hopefully we'll end up seeing minority ownership in, you know, like sometimes these relationships get really messy. Like, remember, Hulu was originally owned by three or four different entities. Yeah. And they all had a stake in it, and they all showed each other's work on it. And, like, there are some scenarios in which Apple comes in and says, all right, we're going to buy 40% of AMC. We're going to get a much better deal when we want to show Apple stuff on AMC. But then you guys are going to remain your executive structure, and you're going to still get to program non-Apple content. Like, those deals are also possible now. It doesn't just have to be we gobble you up we drink your milkshake, but there's a variety <laughs> of options for how this might go. It's a strange time, especially because all the big tech companies tend to be complete, like they tend to just buy whole things. They don't tend to strike deals. And frankly, AMC is not in any kind of position to negotiate or regal, but through no fault of their own. I mean, all of the major change have made mistakes, but the situation they're in financial rear right now is not of their own making.
1: Well, look, how does this affect you, the filmmaker? Beyond where you're going to see movies or what kind of movies you can see where. And you're probably thinking, I don't even know when I'm going to be going back into a movie theater, let alone who's going to own it. I think it's just, it's always important to keep an eye on what is happening in the major, when the major plates, the tectonic plates under filmmaking and entertainment, movies and television shift. It's important to identify that and think about it and see how it's going to affect everything because it's going to move everything like these these changes will impact everything from down from you know from the biggest movies and where they go to the smallest ones and where they're going to live and whether or not you know imagine something like if apple bought sundance i'm not saying that something like that would ever happen but i'm just saying like once these places that are known for exhibiting, showing, once these things merge, it definitely changes what opportunities exist and how you get, how you break in.
0: Up next, uh, if you haven't been listening to the Team Deacons podcast, it's a phenomenal podcast and you should check it out. It is hosted by Roger and James Deacons, They're their husband and wife couple that work on movies together and uh, are hired as a team. And they interview various creatives. They've got a lot of great ones on there, including a really fascinating one with some color science people a few weeks ago. But the most recent one was with an editor, Joe Walker. They've worked with several times. And one of the big conversations that came out of it was sort of a a deep dive into tech test screenings, which is something that we realized we've never actually talked about on the No Film School podcast, the test screening process. What was interesting about their conversation is that, you know, many different perspectives came out that the sort of universal agreed upon, and this is actually something I agree with, is that the most important part of a test screening is just sitting in a room with an audience and being receptive to their emotional experience of your movie and like there is silence where people are engaged and there's silence where they're bored and you know the difference and it's like that emotional experience and being attuned and awake to that teaches you more about filmmaking than anything else and what was interesting is they had a big conversation about the uh questions that come out at the end and every time there's always a huge conversation about like what questions you are asking what questions are if there's outside finance people what questions are they asking and like it's always this insane process because frankly i learned 95 percent sitting in the room with my movie and an audience and then like five percent their answers to questions Because if you think about it, it's hard to articulate things, and the questions are often so leading and force you into thinking about things that you might might not have been the first thing you talked about. I have done screenings where we just sort of sat around and have a chat after. Um, Those are best with smaller – like when you've got 300 people in an audience, you're not going to sit around and have a chat. But, you know, 50 people, 30 people, whoever wants to stay, you have a nice conversation. And that's usually pretty interesting because it's organic, but those questions, the cards you come up with questions are so leading um, that they can really, uh, I find they are less useful.
1: Yeah, and it seems like Roger Deakins would agree with that. Charles, so you are in good company. <laughs> but uh, I'll take his, it. His, his suggestion is that sometimes it's just about the feel in the room, and it's not what those answers are. Um, and you get more from the feel in the room, and that seems to be something they all agreed on in in the chat. I like this, and I like highlighting it and talking about it because, in my experience. You know, I think culturally there's a bit of an aversion to the idea of focus grouping. Like if you if you ever hear the phrase like focus group, it means that someone chose something bland, not based on their – this is the connotation I'm talking about, not the actual definition of it. But they chose something bland based on the will of a random selection of people who, you know, without going with their gut, trusting their instincts, they let the masses vote and decide and it ended up blocked. Um, and test screening has a slightly different connotation because, and you'll hear or read about in the history of Hollywood, like test screenings that went horribly, or like there's an infamous fight club one, or there's, you know, filmmakers sitting in the back of the test screening and everybody hating it or executives screaming at them, you got to change everything. And that there's a lot of, uh, there's a big spectrum in terms of response, reaction, feedback, and, and there's. I think there's no one way, there's no right way. And that does not come from any place of of authority either. But my personal feeling when it comes to to test screenings or any kind of focus group is be open to hearing whatever people have to say. You don't have to use it. You don't have to like it. But I think the practice for any creative, any producer, any director, writer, anybody of just Letting this create the space to hear or experience what people experience of your work. Don't feel the, the, the need to, I wish I could go back and, and help myself and the other young filmmakers and creators I knew years ago with the same advice. Um, it, it's just, just be willing to open that space for it. Like you don't have to use it. Maybe there's nothing you could do about it. Maybe there is, but like, don't just shut it down immediately because I think That negative connotation about these things has a tendency to make people feel like they should automatically bullhead their way through and stubbornness is right and trust yourself and don't listen to what they say and executives don't know what they're talking about. and Just leave room for the possibility that you will... And the other great thing I heard that this article reminds me of is that you should have like a rule of three or something, pick a number. Whereas if like three or four or five people all say the same specific thing, you should definitely pay some attention to it. But like if one person says a weird thing, you could probably ignore it. Um, I just like that because I think it's so true. If you get like five of the exact same specific note, like, "oh, the the opening scene is really slow. Like that means the opening scene is slow. I hate to tell you, but it's true.
0: I needed to hear that advice when I was 19 because it was very Mm -hmm. argumentative and bullheaded um i also think it's really good advice at all stages in all directions i've like i can't tell you the number of times like i've had a guest in my class or whatever and the guest is like giving some sort of advice and they're like having a good conversation with the student and then the student starts arguing with them about their advice and i can just watch the professional relationship collapse you just can ignore the advice you just don't have to take it but like why are you arguing like, just don't take it.
1: Because youth is so, is wasted on the young, Charles. And like, I yeah. have the, the same, I was the like, I was sure that it was more important to be right and certain at that time and stick to the guns on something than it was to even create the space to hear what might be wrong.
2: I feel like there's some form of, you know, when you make decisions in kind of a very corporate environment, you have to name the, the people in your decision. So not everyone is a decider, but you can have someone give you input, but they may not be the one that's actually going to make the final decision. I always think about that with things about feedback. That's great. Like, at what level are they giving feedback? Are they giving creative feedback? Are they and who's making the decision? It might be helpful to to rewind a little and say who who's giving me inputs and and then what they're focusing on. Who's making the final decision? Because whoever's doing it's the rapid format. Each letter stands for something, and and the there are people who are input that's the i and the d is the decider and then that's where the, the who has the d comes from the p is a performer so who's actually doing the actions that we're talking about so everyone in your in a short in kind of a corporate sphere like a short or small team has kind of a role to play and that can help i think when you're trying to decide what to do in those moments of like should we make this longer or shorter it's it's easy when you know 12 people in a focus group told you that it's not funny or whatever it is but it's harder when it's something like should we really do this thing who's going to make that decision i
1: think you i think you provided the key ingredient to helping somebody unlock their ability to hear notes which is remember that you are the decider so this is not your ego, your position is not just because somebody gave you a note doesn't mean they're stealing your baby or rewriting your, you know, whatever.
2: All feedback is a gift.
1: Right. Or like, you know, like Lucas and Coppola like those guys were kind of like the, the the studio chopped up my genius, you know. And that may be true. I like not I'm not picking on those guys. They're great. I love them. But I'm just saying that I think that mentality has prevented people sometimes from creating the space to allow to, and then you be the decider. Like you can like give yourself the D, but, but let that input like exist so you can maybe learn from it or grow from it. Like instead of just be destroyed by it. I really love
0: uh, this because it's all about like clarity. It's like we know you're the decider so we can give notes without anyone feeling like we're trying to take it over it feels like this is freeing both for everyone in that team I've never actually worked in a corporate team that that had that level of clarity but I love it yeah is that something is there it like a great. name for that process or is that something you practice with a specific is it the delatour system like <laughs>
2: Um, It is not. I wish that it was mine. I often use it um, in my work. So rapid is a form. It's a kind of a corporate or I would say a formal structure towards making a decision. And so some people have decision documents in their kind of corporate sphere ready to go. And what it does is lay out who plays what role in that decision. It also lays out the options that you have and the pros and cons for those. And so each of the R-A-P-I-D stands for a role. And so the R is recommend. So this person's recommending the decision. They're not going to be the one that makes it. There is the D, which is the decider. And that's where the, who has the D, you may have heard that term before. That's where part of where it comes from. So who has the decision in this?
0: Part of the thing is that in film we've trad- we've relied on these very clear roles of well the director has the final decision on everything we say but yeah, actually it's right, not, not really. true. <laughs> yeah. You <exactly>. know. <laughs> right. And so it's like it is interesting I wonder if this will work in film just because people are so territorial that yeah. if the director will ever willingly give up the D even though like obviously in the end we know sometimes the producer has the D on certain things. Right. I don't know if the director will ever want to acknowledge
1: that that's the producer's D. There may be like departmental D.
2: Yeah, I don't know if it applies to every decision because you're trusting people's knowledge and skills often in those other moments. So who has the decision when it comes to the correct lighting to use and those things? Like you're going to someone for that expertise, and that kind of is an inherent. There could be decisions along the way that for which that whoever decides that changes. More importantly, give everyone a voice in the process and you've decided what that role is. So you're including everyone in that decision making. You may not go by what you want everyone to have. You know, you want people who have input, the eye in that situation to give a voice to it. You want to acknowledge that that is a opinion or a, a fact or whatever they're contributing to the, to the process. And then you, here's like a piece of formal documentation for which you guys ans- asked all the questions you needed to ask clarified all the options that were on the table and why you made that decision and, and and who decided to do that. I think that there's there are places for which adding kind of formal decision-making structures can be helpful in making some of your creative, technical or non-technical decisions.
1: Yeah, I love it. I think that there's a lot of situations where for a production company or for a filmmaker, depending on the situation, something like that could help them identify a workflow that, that keeps people keeps people's feeling of of, uh, ownership of their work and how it's represented and where their input goes and what they have say on and what they don't. You know, I think that's all. You're muddled. And when it's it's muddled, I think it leads to confusion and mess. And I think that looking for new ways to get input and incorporate it effectively is a, a valid quest.
0: This week in tech news... Sigma have launched their new 85mm Art Lens. Now, we don't usually do a tech news just for one lens, but there's cool stuff about this lens I wanted to talk about. And so we're talking about a single lens, and that is the brand new Sigma 85mm f1.4 Art DGDN. And it is specifically designed for mirrorless cameras, and that means that it works with a shallower flange focal distance. So that means that the lens mount is closer to the sensor. Why does that matter? That matters because having a shallower flange focal distance allows lens designers to do all sorts of cool stuff, like make the lens both shorter and narrower. The front filter goes from an 86 down to a 77, but more important than any of that, lighter. It, co- it went from 1130 grams to 630 grams. It lost 500 grams, which is, it's, it's like slightly more than half the weight it was before. And that is super cool. Now, what does that mean for filmmakers? Why is this relevant for filmmakers? Well, first off, the Sigma art lenses have been very popular with filmmakers. They have smooth apertures. It's not a, de- it's not a clicked aperture. It is a um, autofocus system a fully spinning uh, focus ring. So it's, you know, for filmmakers, you do have to adapt it a little bit to work with repeatable focus moves. But you still see a lot of art on independent productions because they're very nice, very beautiful looking lenses that are much more affordable. You know, the Sigma Cine Prime is like 2,500 to three grand a lens. This is 1,200 a lens. But the Sigma Cine Prime is largely based on the art lenses. And those original art lenses were all designed for the EF mount primarily with that larger flange focal distance which made for heavier lenses, which made for longer lenses, physically larger lenses. And now that we're starting to see art lenses uh, roll out for uh, mirrorless, it's pretty exciting. Now, Sigma's had some mirrorless stuff for a while right and usually these lens mounts are stuff like the l mount which sigma supports they're one of the partners in with panasonic and leica when you're starting to see uh e-mount like the sony a7s3 Mm -hmm. or things like that but it's super exciting to see this sucker i mean i i've always loved 85 it's always been one of my favorite lenses i used to shoot a lot on the super speed 85 which also opened to 1.4 this lens makes me think we're getting close to a uh either lpl Or something like a set of Cine Primes that are available in mirrorless mounts, like E-mounts, L-mount, LPL-mount Cine Primes. They'll still be three grand a lens, but they'll be three grand a lens with the Sigma glass in them and sort of built for Cine. And I feel like we're getting really close, and it seems like they'll even weigh a little less than the original Cine prime. So that's, that's what my gut is telling me, is that that's probably coming. And that's why I found this lens release pretty interesting.
2: Do you think they'll expand beyond L and Sony E to Z or R? Uh,
0: <laughs> I have no read on how many units Z is selling. I suspect, I mean, you know, Sigma sold a lot of R lenses in RF and EF mount. My assumption is that there will be an RF mount for Canon R. My assumption is that it will not be super popular because the thing you want Out of that system is you want out of Canon, you want like the Canon lens and the Canon body working together, playing together with like that magic autofocus thing it can do. What's interesting is it is Sony E-mount and you want the same out of Sony. Many people stick with Sony glass with their Sony bodies because people are getting really amazing results from the autofocus Mm -hmm. there. What's interesting is, uh, and this is anecdotal, I haven't tested it, but anecdotally, I've talked to some people with the Sigma glass on a Sony body who've said that they feel like it's close in terms of autofocus performance. And that's Mm -hmm. sort of an interesting thing. I mean, E-mount's been around since 2014, and RF-mount, well, except RF-mount's two years old, you would think that there would be the possibility for, yeah, it is interesting that at least RF-mount isn't in there. You would think it would be EL and RF, and Z maybe someday. I wonder what, uh, do you ever read on why they uh, left it out?
2: Here's what I think off the bat, I'm curious to see – I feel like 85 millimeters is a portrait lens for a lot of folks. And so if we're talking video versus photography, they tried to maybe – well, actually, no. If they were trying to do photography, they probably would have expanded into the other mounts. I'm not sure. I feel like there was a decision to be made about what people are using those cameras for, if they're using them for photo or video, and whether or not they expand into it knowing that 85mm 1.4 is a portrait lens. Which would made it fine for Sony E. That was an, you know, that was a no-brainer. It's interesting to me that the Sony E came first because they're competing up against the direct competitor, the eighty-five millimeter 1.4 from Sony. So I would be interested to see what now that they actually have a competitor model <laughs> to do the autofocus test directly between the two. Because now that they can, <laughs> because it's they have the eighty-five on both. I am a huge I should just say this off the bat so that Sigma can send me some stuff. I'm a huge Sigma fan. I love the bogey monster, the 105 millimeter. If you ever get your hands on it, it's really fun to play with. I have a Sigma and Sony. So I have a Sigma, the 16 millimeter 1.4, which is the aps I What I've love, what i loved about them always and why I like um, them so much is, and this is why I would be interested in comparing the 285s, is the price point. So they're coming in with a glass that's pretty, pretty great at a price point that's hundreds of dollars cheaper. It is third-party glass. So you're you know, you're taking, you're doing that, but I think the output far outweighs like it's Just like for the amount of dollar and what you're getting is the ratio is right. So I don't know. I, I'm interested to see if they expand their offerings because the other the 85 millimeter, the not the non full frame model, is available for Nikon and Canon and Sony. So. I'm curious if they'll do the same with this and if they just aimed. I, I, we know the L-mount is there because they can say that it goes on their camera, right? Which was like one of is this one of the first lenses. I feel like one of the first lenses have come out where they said this is available also. You can get it for the Sigma FB. <laughs> so it's nice that it's and well-timed um, and the Sony to be a direct competitor. I'd be interested to see where else they expand it.
0: All right. Up next, we have an Ask No Film School. Michelle, lay it out.
2: So I haven't asked no film, so I'm so excited that I get to to do my own. And I, I think that this is a common held question. Every time you potentially hear an award or something that's geared towards this, it always, this question comes back for me, which is, how important is it to have a, quote, strong debut? So we talk about when there are films that come out and it is the debut feature film we should clarify that, debut film from so-and-so or it's the debut book from so-and-so or we, in the spirits, there's a first feature award. And so what I think is interesting is the tension between go create lots of stuff and the, and that part one and then part two is, but I also want my debut to be strong. I think that's a very interesting tension. And so I was curious if you had an opinion about that and what guidance you could give to people who are thinking about that might be stuck there, right? I really want my first feature to be amazing and I want to be on these lists and or creating content just for this, you know, to build your skill set.
0: Debut is almost meaningless anymore because the way we consume and create content has changed, right? Like debut in 1950 You'd written a novel, and the novel got published. You'd made a feature, and the feature got published. And all those shorts didn't count. All the film school films didn't count. All of that stuff didn't count. And, and you know, in 2020, you might make a feature, but you've already made 50 shorts and 24 commercials and 10 music videos, and, you know, they're all online, and some of them were in festivals, and they're all available, and some of them might be better than your feature. And and so, like, w- your concept of debut is totally changed. Also, I mean, I remember... I was at like a dinner once with a bunch of Hollywoody people. I'm sure I've told this anecdote before, but I, I said something about Wes Anderson's first movie, Bottle Rocket. And the, a dude at the table who was a Disney executive said, uh, that wasn't Wes Anderson's first movie. Wes Anderson's first movie was Rushmore. And I was like, no, 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 Bottle Rocket came first, like two years earlier. And he's like, he just looked at me and he was like, Bottle Rocket wasn't a movie. And it was just like the perfect encapsulate because it wasn't produced by a studio. So to this person who worked at Disney, like it just didn't count. Like in his mind, yeah. Wes Anderson's debut was Rushmore because even though James Khan is in Bottle Rocket and Bottle Rocket is great and it has like the best ending line of any movie ever and um, it like still – like, so, you know, our concept of view is very subjective. What's interesting about this too to me is Bob Galenson is a University of Chicago economist who wrote a book called Old Masters and Young Geniuses. And it's really great because he was in his late 30s and he hadn't published anything big. And so he decided to do a yeah. study of when people peaked in their career. Yes. And yes. first off, it's so comforting to be like, oh, economists also wonder about this too. Like, this isn't just artists. Like, he's an economist and he had the same anxiety of like, My peers are publishing big papers, but I haven't yet. And he discovered that there are outliers, but for the most part, like 90% of people fall in two categories. Either you shoot up rapidly, you peak between 26 and 28, and you fall rapidly, or the Orson Welles, in terms of success, right? I like some of Orson Welles' late movies, like, you know, but he had trouble financing those late movies and they're few and far between. And like, in terms of like, he was ranking it in terms of sale prices, ticket sales, critical success, you've got your Orson Welles. And then you've got, you know, the vast, you know, like 60% of people have a curve that gently goes up and peaks between 40 and 60 on sort of a general soft curve and then coasts down after 60. Your Kurosawas, your Fellini's, your vast majority of other people, that is their curve. And so, you know, even though I think Fellini's technical debut is I, Vitelloni*, which is a good movie, I think that's officially his debut. I don't remember off the top of my head, but it's not what we talk about when we talk about Fellini. We talk about all of these mid to late career movies, Eight and a Half, Satyricon, um, Amarcord. When we're talking about Kurosawa, I mean, I can't even tell you what Kurosawa's first film is. Stray Dog, even from the late forties, I don't think was his first film but we're still talking about these like later career films. So, there are outliers. There are Tarantino or Spielbergs who shoot up at 26 and stay up. They exist. You know, Picasso and painting shot up by 26, stayed up. He's not saying that doesn't happen, but he's saying those are very rare. Most people, 40% shoot up 26, fall down, or 60% of people shoot up and peak between about 40 and 60. Those are the two average arcs for most people. And you can't choose they just are. But what, what I really liked about it, the, the full book is worth a read. Uh, I, I heard about this in an article. And so I decided to read the whole book and the whole book is worth a read because he makes all of these arguments for why he thinks the people peak from 40 to 60. And it's sort of a, it's an iterative process for those creators. He, re, he goes back and he reads painter's letters and, he, and sculptors like diaries and all of this stuff to sort of identify why. And like, it's an iterative process they have to make a thing and see what it is and then make another thing and see what it is and make another thing and like their work gets better over time as they keep reinvigorating it and doubling down on it and growing and and looking at it and that's like you know none of those debuts are necessarily Uh, the thing that like makes them is it a great marketing hook to to launch at 26 it's a great marketing hook it makes a great story everyone wants to be on that 40 under 40 list everyone wants to like have a magazine article about being an enfant terrible but like you know it's not that common which is why it makes a good marketing thing but it's also like not the story of many of our favorite creators of like works that really move us so like you know i mean for me I made a, a feature length project in undergrad. Is that my first feature? I don't think so. I think my first feature is angels perch, which was made with a bigger budget and a bigger cast and a bigger crew. And I was more mature and it was a bigger story and all that. But like, there's still that 91 minute project I shot on super 16 when I was 20 that like is theoretically there. So like, you know, it's, it's all these weird nebulous things about like what we call what if you're iterative, be iterative, just keep making stuff and learning from it. And, you know, either one is, I think a fair and legitimate existence. Um, and I think the only, you know, if you happen to be the, the, the one that goes up early, try and enjoy the ride up and try and stay up because people do figure it out. But if you also slump down, just remember how good it was to enjoy the Heights and go to the beach.
2: And bring people in.
0: Oh, yeah. Bring right? people in. Keep working with others. Keep collaborating. Share share the access that you get from peaking early. And um, yeah, all of those things. That's my answer. This is more. Fun. It's interesting because this is the first time we've ever done it where it was like an inside question, where it was like a question you had. Yes. So it's interesting.
2: The end game to me is... Either you have something or you don't. Like, if you wait too long and you're like, oh, I really need my debut something, insert thing here. Right? This can be applied across the board, right? Music, video, book, whatever it might be. And you think, oh, I really need to attach the word debut to it. And you and you potentially wait before you get something, you, then you don't have anything to show, right? So there's this game of, I really want this to be really good or amazing and uh, because it's going to be my debut but the alternative is then you don't have anything to show like creative work to to point back to. And so if you didn't, you know, if you, if you're in that space of, oh, I really like this idea, but I don't know if it's good enough, like know that there will be one (laughs) likely opportunities to make more stuff, but you won't have anything to point to if you don't make it. So like there's always stepping stones. We're always making stuff and and growing from it. And I say this for more, for for myself and other people as well, right? We're in a sphere of, show you the thing. I don't know if it's good enough. But you're never going to know if you don't do it. 1 2. Um it's always a place to grow from. And even if it's not your most favorite thing that you ever made, like there's a thing that was made and that to me is most important, honestly. And then use that as your you can use that as your launchpad. There's no there's no rules here. <laughs> it's not like you get one and done. <laughs> like, like that only applies if it feels like to other things like this is not one of those things (laughs) you're allowed to keep doing it
0: also you want to keep learning like we all want to keep learning and everything you make everything i've ever made i've learned something from and everything you make you should hopefully learn something too and so like you know i like it's really difficult because there is the james cameron school of like no one is ever celebrated No one ever walked out of a film saying, well, at least it opened on time. Like you want to make the best possible work you can. And if that takes an extra year, take an extra year. But then there's the flip side of like, how many people do I know who weren't working on the same screenplay for a decade? How many people do I know who like have been trying to, you know, like it's hard to get movies made. So it's fair, but it's also like, sometimes you just have to go make stuff. Sometimes you just got to take the leap off the pier. You've just got to get moving and do things and see what, You learn from it and then get moving and do something else, and see what you learn from it and get moving and do something else. Like, that's, you know, also a useful model of doing things and being too precious. You know, back in the 90s, we had these things called DVDs. You guys might not be old enough to remember, but like physical discs. But I think we got listeners who are like high school students who might not remember. (laughs)
2: They have no idea.
0: But they had these collections of like film uh, directors. Like, there was a Spike Jones collection and a Michelle Gondry collection. And I remember he, Michelle Gondry, had like a little video intro for his. And in his very French way, he was like, I had to choose between quantity and quality, and I chose quantity. Michel Gondry obviously has made tremendous works of real quality, but he presents it as, I just tried to make as much as I possibly could. And like, out of that comes amazing music videos and Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind and The Science of Sleep, although I like Eternal Sunshine a little better, but like, Science of Sleep also good. Cause he just was like, I'm going to make lots of things. And I was like, yeah, there's, there's something in that, that like, I, I can see, I mean, I also get the Kubrick, like I'm going to make one movie a decade for six decades and that's going to be my seven movies. But you know, even Kubrick is more of the, of the iterative type, his first movies. I mean, first off his first, first movie he hid from the world. And then even his early movies, they're good and I like them, but like They're not nearly as magnificent as he came to later in his career. So I think, uh, you know, that's the move. Wrapping it up, week of August 15th. Uh, everybody plug your pluggables uh, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Charles Haynes C-H-A-R-L-E-S-H-A-I-N-E and check out my show Salty Pirate on Amazon Prime and Ficto and and uh, Vimeo VOD SaltyPirate.tv
2: This is Michelle De La Tour you can find me on Instagram and Twitter M-D-E-L-A-T-E-U-R I'm going to choose quantity over quality as a reminder today and we look forward to talking with you guys soon. Please feel free to send us questions for Ask No Film School and let us know what you think.
1: And this is George Edelman, editor in chief at No Film School. Check out what's going on over at nofilmschool.com. We have a post on the 20 best books about writing TV. So if you're interested in writing, of course, be sure to download our free screenwriting ebook, How to Write a Screenplay During Quarantine. It's a great 10-week program. It's 100 pages plus. It's completely free. It's got a lot of forms and information you can use. But we also have a really cool post up on the site right now called The 20 Best Books on Writing TV. If you're interested in writing a spec or getting staffed, that's a great place to start. Uh, So check it out. Thanks so much for listening. If you have any questions for us, please email them to editor at nofilmschool.com or ask at nofilmschool.com. And we will hopefully answer and get them on the podcast. Please like, rate, subscribe, leave a comment, let us know how we're doing. Thanks so much.